From the studios of KPCW in Park City, this is The Mountain Life, Healthy Living in the Wasatch. I'm Lynn Ware Peak, and this morning we speak first with Celeste Edmonds. She is the executive director of a national organization called Christmas Box International that helps displaced children. She joins the show to tell her own personal story, now in the form of a new book, co-written by best-selling author Richard Paul Evans. It's called Garbage Bag Girl. It's a title which Celeste Edmonds gave to herself as she moved from one foster situation to another as she grew up with all of her belongings in a garbage bag. Then guest co-host Jay Burke and I speak with Ginger Hall. She's the race director for the Crusher in the Tusher. It's a gravel bike race near Beaver, Utah. She'll talk about this race that explores a scenic and little-known area of Utah up to 10,000 vertical feet. The race entry fills up in minutes, but stay tuned to hear how you can still get an entry into this year's race on July 6th. That's all coming up this hour. Stay with us. We'll be back after these words. Welcome back to The Mountain Life. I'm Lynn Ware Peak. By the time my next guest reached 16 years old, she had lived in 30 different cities. Now, she wasn't a glamorous world traveler. She was what she calls a garbage bag girl. Celeste Edmonds' tumultuous journey through a childhood filled with abuse, neglect, and a fractured family system. Against all odds, she found strength and resilience in the face of adversity. She has co-written a memoir, a new book about it. It's called The Garbage Bag Girl. Celeste Edmonds is the executive director of the Christmas Box International. You may recognize that name. She co-wrote this book with Richard Paul Evans, who is a 46-time New York Times bestselling author and someone we've spoken to several times on this show. Celeste Edmonds, welcome to The Mountain Life. It's great to have you. Thank you. I love the mountain life. <laughs> <laughs> Celeste, what a childhood you had. By the time you were seven, you you were a foster child in the child welfare system, which also I think we're going to learn a lot about in your book is, you know, you may come from an abusive household, but then you're put oftentimes into another type of abusive household as a foster child. Yeah, unfortunately that that definitely can happen. We as a system, of course, don't want that to happen and why the Christmas box emergency shelters, Christmas box houses are, are important is because we get to, one, sheltered care is not what's unique about the Christmas box houses. It's the fact that we try to bring all services under one roof so that children aren't moved as much, but we also keep kiddos through the age of 18, which means brothers and sisters get to be kept together, which was, was not something that happened for me, but we definitely get to offer these kids. And we keep about a thousand siblings together every year between our three shelters. And, you know, when you've, when you've been put in a place where you've lost everything, every single thing has been taken from you and your siblings are the, the last touch point that you have to anything that matters to you. That remarkably carries you through a, a lot of trauma and a lot of shifts. And so it's, you know, if I have to get, I guess a favorite part of the program for me, it's definitely that. How many siblings do you have? Uh, biological, I have two. 
Um, and then, you know, uh, no spoiler alert, but I was adopted twice. And the first one was was very abusive and, and is a big component to the book. And so I have, have three siblings in that environment. And then I have five uh, with the with the woman that adopted me as an adult, whom the book is dedicated to, my mom, Carly. That's really home base for me, of course, now outside of having my own three children, which is awesome. That's home for me is those siblings and and my mom, Carly. Your mom, Carly, you talk about as being the the com truly compassionate, wonderful, loving, caring person that really delivered you from this whole host of abusive situations that you had been in from the time you were born, really. I think it's interesting about someone like Carly. I think that very often people will say it was that one person who made the difference in my life or this one turn of events that made right. the difference in my life. Even though we're jumping and fast forwarding to Carly, what was it that she did? Well, she was just one of many homes every six months that I was going to bounce around to. And after being with her for two months, my sister Lisa, who brought me into the family, um, you know, I guess the honeymoon kind of wore off. She was like, it isn't so cool sharing all my clothes and my twin size bed anymore. And she was like, mom, do we have to keep her? <laughs> and Carly replies, she comes, she says, home is where they have to keep you. Mm -hmm. And I remember the first time I heard it, I was like, mm, yeah, until they don't. Like, what, is, what does that even mean? And she just reinforced it by saying, stop cleaning. That's what, that's what you do. So no one kicks you out, which is awesome. But please stop cleaning. Please pay attention when I say to you, there's nothing that you're going to do that is going to push you out of this home and you get, I want you to stay. And so she did have one stipulation and in much more colorful words, she said, but you do need to get your butt back in school. And so I was like, okay. I mean, if that's a deal breaker, nobody's ever held that level of, you know, expectation for me, nor thought I could even accomplish it. So she has me re-enroll in school. And I think what's important um, with this situation is that she's technically harboring a minor. It's not, I wasn't, you know, any, any way legally supposed to be in her home. She just stepped up and recognized here's this girl that keeps getting shifted and I'm going to go to bat for her. Um, and she did. She, she called uh, Kathy. That's very much a big part of the book. My first adopted mom and basically said, if you keep calling the school and harassing her, which she was doing, Celeste needs to be put in juvenile detention. She's nothing but a troublemaker. And the vice principal who I talk about a little bit in the book, who was one of my true guardian angels, he'd be standing in the hallway with his watch. Celeste, you can't miss my senior year of high school. You can't miss one class. You cannot be late to one class or you won't graduate. This is a very different situation for you. I had dropped out and he was kind of like Carly, that person in my court that said, don't give her a reason to be right about you because she's not, you know, she's just, she's just being mean. So Carly calls her one day and says, Hey, I've learned your, uh, I don't know, maybe cashing some social security checks. You're not supposed to be cashing of hers and I'll turn, I'll turn you in. You keep bugging her. So that stopped. That was great. <laughs> but she always stepped up as like a, a mom would like you with your children or me with my children in those situations where maybe their voice isn't being heard or they don't know how to have their voice be heard. And you kind of 
after that push, she was that person. And she always reminded me that I was worth it, that I, I deserved more and I deserved to have what other kids got. And she was a single mom at the time with two children, two other teenage girls. And she didn't need me from that perspective in her home. Um, and I was a lot, you know, I'd been through a lot. I pushed on her a lot and she just, she still says it today, homes where they have to keep you. So the joke was I came for Thanksgiving dinner and never left. We still had to, at age 26, hire an attorney, go before a judge, give a testimony why we wanted that to happen. And, and so that adoption became really at the time, what I thought was just a good business decision. So Kathy wouldn't have access to my children ever. And it really ended up being more, uh, much more than that. It was, it was very symbolic to me that no matter my age, no matter my circumstances, I would eventually find that home where, where I would be kept and I would be told you matter, which is my most important message with the book. If you're just joining me on the mountain life, I'm having a conversation with Celeste Edmonds. She's written a new book. It's a memoir called the garbage bag girl. She has co-written it with number one, New York times bestselling author, Richard Paul Evans, the author of the Christmas box, Celeste Edmonds is the executive director of the Christmas Box International. Let's go back, let's rewind to the situation that you were born into. And obviously you have to relive this whole thing, which could either be cathartic or really traumatizing. But I think as we know about PTSD, sort of going back into it is maybe the best way to get over it. What was it like for you in the beginning? So in the beginning, and I think, you know, when people ask me, why maybe did, did you do better than somebody else? I, I interviewed my aunt during the process of writing my book, who I learned because I didn't really know that answer too. Why do I, why do I do better than my siblings? Why do I do better than other children in the child welfare system in, in terms of um, an, a better outcome? And I interviewed my aunt and she shared with me, which I didn't know that she had basically raised me for the first 18 months of my life, which doesn't sound like a long time at a year and a half, but if you get into the whole mind, um, you know, connection with children, that first year from a connection standpoint is critically actually the most important year. And she has these memories of being in high school, but yet carrying me around on her hip, wherever she would be, getting up with me at night and feeding me, holding me. So I actually attribute my ability to connect from that very early development age that my brother and sister didn't get. When we moved out and at the time my biological mother was pregnant with my sister, who would, is my two years younger than me. And then eventually my younger brother who's seven years younger than me, the motion of drugs and addiction and you know, men coming to the house when my dad wasn't there to, to, to pick up money for pills and um, sexual abuse. And that just exploded by nature of, you know, my, my biological mom's inability to, to manage that with her own addictions and, and her old, own tra child trauma and, and my dad being an addict and being away in jail or in a, in a drug rehabilitation center. So there was no, no oversight. Um, so yeah, then the state steps in and decides, okay, maybe now we need to help. And unfortunately for me, that wasn't better 
I moved every six months. I was raised in child welfare in the early 80s in a time when the state felt like if you're not going to be adoptable, and by the way, if a child reaches the age of four, their chances of being adopted drop 50%. So if you're deemed unadoptable, um, you shouldn't connect anyway. We shouldn't put you, keep you in placements long enough where you're going to make a connection. Obviously, fast forward today, we know that it's very inaccurate. And whether you're going to stay in a family for two weeks, two years, or the rest of your life, you can still learn to bond and make a strong connection. And we all deserve to have that. So yes. now we definitely have much more of an emphasis to keep children in the system longer. Can I ask you a question, Celeste, about the child welfare system? To an outsider, when you hear stories about young people in in the system, it seems as though it's sort of one trauma, one set of abuse after another. Is there something that you think attracts abusers to becoming foster parents? And and is that just such a huge generalization? But there's so many stories that you hear that make you wonder. Yeah, absolutely. You hear people say it's only for the money. And, you know, really, that's extremely inaccurate because they make like $14 a day. And even though, you know, the child welfare system, for me, I feel I was wronged in every capacity. But I don't think it was the people. And I believe that with, you know, children that go to families today, you're always going to have that one-off, that one family that adopted me that miraculously got 12 letters of recommendation and everybody thought was an awesome family because in the community, they, they seem stellar and upstanding. And you're always going to have the one, you know, foster family that's going to make it bad and sound bad for everybody else. But mostly people in this child welfare system and foster families are really trying to open their home, give a safe, loving environment for their children. I really don't think that's the trend. I just think it's it's what you hear about. But there's a lot of children that actually do have good experiences. Um, yes. I think, you know, the message to me is that if you are those people making those critical decisions for these kids, don't lose sight when they're very hard to raise and they're throwing at you everything that's been thrown at them. Don't lose sight that their voice still matters mm -hmm. and they still are children. They're not just kids in the foster care system. They're kids just like your kids. They still need all the same things that your kids need, including empathy and compassion and love. And please, if, if you're not somebody that can be tested like that and you can still persevere like my mom, Carly, has done, it's probably not right for you. And that's okay. Um, people ask me all the time, why, why aren't you a foster parent? It makes so much sense that you would foster. It, it doesn't make sense for me. I don't, you know, I, I definitely have triggers that come up that that would be very hard for me. And mm -hmm. in all, in all honesty, I'm not helping one child at a time. I'm going to help 14,000 children in my role a year. And that's where I belong. When you started talking about the Christmas box international, um, that you are the executive director of, it made me think, is this a modern day orphanage that is a you know, a positive, well-done experiment or experience. You know, you talked in the beginning about keeping siblings together. That seems so important to me. What would you say about that? Um, again, it, it, shelter care is not what's unique. And as a system, 
So the, the technical term would be called congruent care, and it is quite frowned upon. Shelter care is not a scalable model, um, so it also isn't the only thing that we do for that reason, because we do want kids in, in homes. I had an eight-year-old girl at a, at a event. We had a party at the, at the Salt Lake Christmas box house come up and say to me, she's eight years old. And she says, I'm going to create a disruption. She uses that word to come back to the Christmas box house because this is a better place for me. And I want to be here. And I was so grateful that of course she felt she had it, but I was quick to say, I'm sorry that you understand the word disruption. Yeah in terms of child welfare phrase for you. And this is not your permanent placement. Never please forget that you do deserve a home and this is not your home. This is a great temporary place that we established to keep kids safe two weeks to a month until the better placement is found. And that's what it's designed for. And when you live in a state like Utah, where we have very large families, three, four, five kids is not uncommon. And then you have children, right, removed three, four, five kids, and you try to find a family that can take that many children and have up to 10 children in their home, you already start to understand that that's, that's, that's very difficult to ask anyone to do. So while they're in this safe environment with dental services and well childcare checks happening for them, those decisions can be made better and we don't put the strain on our system to have to do what a police officer told us one day when a boy was had his hair ripped out of his head and had you know holes that you could see on the skin and Richard Paul Evans and his wife happened to be at primary children's hospital with their son and he asked the police officer what will you do with this child and he said well if your Christmas box houses was when we were originally building them if your Christmas box house was available, that's where we would take them. But honestly, we'll take them to the first person that answers their phone. And that is not a better solution for children. That leads you down possibly not the right placement for that child, right? In the middle of the night, 2 a.m., whoever answers the phone, that, well, bringing you this boy that has been abused and, and good luck with that. Wow. So the, the difference is, you know, they're not orphanages. These people haven't necessarily had these kiddos haven't had their children, their parents die. But that's certainly what it feels like. They have had them ripped out of their life, right or wrong. They've had everything taken from them, every belonging they have, every extended family member relationship, everything taken from them. The least we can do for them is offer them some stability till that placement is made that is hopefully the right placement. And keep them with their brothers and sisters. Your collaboration and relationship with Richard Paul Evans, many people, especially in Utah, know of the book, The Christmas Box, and the many, many other books that he has written. How did this all come about? And was it he who founded Christmas Box International? Yes. So 30 years ago, when he wrote a little green book called The Christmas Box, based on the loss of a child, Utah was one of many, many states being sued by the National Center for Youth Law for the Mistreatment of Children. He knew a, a bit of my story. So we knew that I was gonna shift from being his personal assistant at the time, so that's how I met him, to moving into the Christmas box role. And three years ago, I became executive director. But 
he and his wife made a lot of money and they decided to give back. And so the name is based on that book, The Christmas Box. We we knew as a state that we needed to do that. We needed to create a, a better and safer environment for kids till those decisions we talked about could be made. But that's how I met him. That's how it evolved. And it was never, you know, right out of the gate, hey, I'm going to write a book about this. He had approached me 20 years ago and said, I think your story would be important to share. And I was, of course, very nervous. My children were young as well. And so he wrote a fictional version called Finding Noel. And that book did remarkably well. And then when I came on as executive director three years ago, he brought it up again. He's like, I really, I really think the timing is right. And it took me about a year to onboard with the idea. I was very nervous. I write about things in the book. I encourage you to get it on Amazon, but I will warn you it's got graphic parts mm -hmm. in it. And um, we really did dumb it down a lot, uh, by the way. Um, there, it, was, it was much more graphic initially because my trauma therapist was like, well, if you're gonna do it, get it all out. <laughs> so right. I did. And then we kind of, you know, reined it in just a bit. But that process was, uh, like you mentioned, it can be both. It can be very healing and it's traumatic at the same time. And that's why, you know, I did on board with a very healthy um, trauma therapist that I say is on style <laughs> because I knew there would be triggers that would be really, really difficult for me as I wrote it. And so that, that definitely was a process, definitely was a journey. And I have been telling people, you know, you, it's really amazing to write your own story. I don't say you have to publish it, <laughs> whole other discussion, but I do think what you learn about yourself in, in writing your own story and what you go through and the learnings that you have is incredible. It's an incredible journey. Absolutely. Well, Celeste, your your new book, of course, Garbage Bag Girl. I, you know, we can all guess where this title came from when you at by the age 16 had lived in 30 different cities. You put your few belongings in a garbage bag and you go on to the next place. You today, the executive director of the Christmas Box International with three children of your own, you're a healthy advocate for children and i know you're also an advocate against child trafficking which you know unbelievably and i think this is the reason that people like you need to talk because many of us don't can't even imagine a world in which that exists and yet even here in utah where there's so much focus on the family there is this horrific uh ugly reality can you talk a little bit about what we can do as Utahns and, and what you do to combat child trafficking? Well, unfortunately, stopping it is a whole other conversation and it's very complicated. But what we do know is that the, first of all, if a child, a young adult exits or emancipates the child welfare system between the ages of 18 and 26, depending on where they're at, and they have no place to go, when they hit the street, so to speak, they have an average of three days before they'll be approached by a trafficker. And if you're them and you have no resources and you've been basically cut off because you don't have that environment, that family environment to go back to, that looks like the very best option for you. And the other issue is if 
if we remove a young adult from a trafficking or an, an adult from a trafficking situation and there is nowhere for them to go, there's no reunification, um, they're going to go back. So I think in general, when people look at programs, it's what are we, what are we doing that is better for the placement they have? It's not enough to just take kids out of an abusive situation. It's not enough to just remove people from a trafficking situation. There has to be a reunification component that is set up to marry that up. So one of the programs we support is called adoptive adaptive ops. It is a man and his team remarkable. It's they are, they specifically what they call extract. They remove kiddos from trafficking situations because they have a family reunification or a Christmas box house to bring them to. So that the moment those young adults are put into a reunification system, now we get wraparound services, mental health services and, and other health services that can actually help them because outside of the reunification piece, you can't do anything. The phrase garbage bag girl, isn't it just about having your stuff taken around in a garbage sack? It's about the mentality that you get into as a human being when you're trafficked or you're moved from place to place every six months, right? And you're constantly reminded that your self-worth isn't there. It doesn't matter. You are a garbage bag person in your mind. Um, and that's really, you know, the value we teach the kiddos that come into our shelter care programs is you deserve a childhood and you never deserve to feel like garbage. Well, such a good lesson for all of us as we all try to teach our kids resilience, even in the best of conditions and, and circumstances and strong families, resilience is a thing. So to read your book, Garbage Bag Girl, talks about resilience in the biggest of ways. So congratulations to you for, for finally getting around to writing this memoir and for all of the work you're doing for children all over the country. Thank you so much, Celeste, for Thank joining me on The Mountain Life. I appreciate yes. you. Thank you. Welcome back to The Mountain Life. I'm Lynn Ware Peak. And I'm Jay Burke. The Crusher in the Tusher is a gravel bike race that departs from Beaver, Utah in early July each year. It calls itself the toughest 69.9 miles on the planet. This uniquely formatted race begins in historic downtown Beaver and finishes at Utah's newest ski and summer resort, Eagle Point. It affords riders the opportunity to explore the stunning backcountry of Utah's little-known Tusher Mountains and the Fish Lake National Forest. Joining us now to tell us more is the race director for the Crusher in the Tusher, Ginger Hall. Ginger, welcome to The Mountain Life. Thank you. Well, first of all, let's look back at a little bit of history about the Crusher, as it's as it's well known. Um, you're sort of a newer race director. It, the race was created uh, by Burke Swindlehurst. I don't know how many years ago. So, if memory serves me correctly, the first event was in 2012. You know, Burke is a retired road bike racer, phenomenal athlete, phenomenal person, even better person than he is a bike rider, and. He always wanted to uh, bring people to his hometown of Beaver. He really wanted to explore races um, using mixed surfaces, both pavement and gravel. So that's how the Crusher was born. You know, it seems as though 
back then gravel biking wasn't really a thing yet and now it's has become really like the next evolution of cycling it seems and that there are gravel races popping up all over the country and seems like people don't ride road bikes really anymore they ride gravel bikes right oh absolutely i mean i i ride gravel now too um you know coming from mountain biking for so many years but i think gravel's just the next natural progression you know um there's the thrill of the mountain bike you know the thrill of road biking but there's nothing that quite matches gravel riding in my opinion so it affords you the ability to see amazing scenery without <laughs> worrying about getting hit by cars or you know, eating it on a descent on a mountain bike trail. So absolutely the next progression. Gosh, yeah, you sure can, you can eat it on, on your gravel bike. <laughs> you can. I said that and then I was like, I'm thinking about the, the descent <laughs> on Cold Crush and I'm like, I know how many people we've picked up in the last yeah. few years. Well, there, as, as Lynn said, many fans in and around Park City of the Crusher. So how has the event evolved since that first event in 2012 that Burke did? How has it evolved through the years? Has the course changed and, and things of that nature? The course has not changed. We've kept it exactly the same. You know, it was it started as a very uh, grassroots event. as Burke's passion project. And it's been such a community event as well. So the evolution is that we just continue to improve the experience year over year and in, in the tiniest of ways while remaining true to that grassroots feel of the event. You know, we work with the community. They uh, man all of our aid stations. And that's one thing that the Crusher is known for is the amazing community support that they experience that you might not get with other events to this level. So um, the progression, I would say, is just a continuation of the amazing experience that Burke started. And just, I have a friend who says that he always wants to do things 1% better, you know, 1% better every time. And, as, and that 1% adds up an awful lot over the years. And so, that's one thing that I want to continue is to maintain the environment that Burke fostered through the years, make it a 1% better every year. Tell us a little bit about the breakdown of the participants. Like what is field size? And then what do you see from kind of like the pro to more of the, you know, what we call like, you know, just the off the couch kind of riders, which I presume is the biggest portion of, of the event. Yeah, you do have the the largest portion of our participants is it is the everyday athlete. You know, I am by no means pro. You would you would know that if you saw me ride. <laughs> but uh, the everyday athlete is truly my where my passion lies. We do have you know the selection of pros, the Crusher and the Tusher. You know, we're very proud to be part of the Lifetime Grand Prix. Um, it's an amazing you know series for the pro athletes, but the meat of our uh, field are the everyday athletes. So people who work full-time jobs, they raise their families, and then they still find time to 
you know, train and ride and bring their families in on their passion, which is cycling. So that is the the bulk of our participants. And those are the ones that I really enjoy watching. I love watching the pros. I think it's fascinating to see people like Keegan Swinson, you know, smash records, insane. <laughs> but I also love watching that very last person cross the line who struggles from the start, you know, or maybe struggling from the start, but he is just he or she is just so proud to cross that finish line. Oh yeah. And crying. Oh my as goodness. They, as they finish. <laughs> we had one girl cross the finish line last year and she crashed really hard on the descent, but refused to give up. And she crossed crying. She's bloody, bruised, you know, banged up. And watching her cross that finish line, I haven't had a chill like that in all of my years of race directing. So <laughs> Yeah, that's, what's that's, cute. that's what keeps you coming back. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. When things get tough and you're in the grit of preparations, knowing that you're going to have that experience on race day is all worth it. So Jay Burke here, my co-host is the founder of the very famous Park City Point to Point is probably a lot more familiar with uh, the group that you belong to Lifetime. And, and I don't really know about it. I did see the whole series, the Call of a Lifetime, is that what it, it was called? Yeah. The documentary series, which was really enjoyable, especially as a huge fan uh, of Keegan Swenson and also of Sofia Viafanes, his his partner, the power couple of of cycling. And so that was really entertaining. But what what is Lifetime overall? And, and how do you choose your events? Well, um, I'm still fairly new to Lifetime. I'm actually only a part-time contract employee of Lifetime Events. Um, so Lifetime Events is, we are an arm of Lifetime uh, Fitness. You know, you see the Lifetime uh, Fitness Clubs across the United States. There's some resorts. And it started in Minnesota by a gentleman. And uh, Lifetime Events, we really focus on... Um, quality events. We don't, you know, of course, there's the Leadville Race Series, the Sea Otter Classic. So we have the really big events, but there are also a, a large number of small grassroots community-based events like Schwamigan, Lutzen 99, the Austin Rattler, you know, things like that as well. So as far as how we determine which events to put on or to you know, acquire. I don't know exactly how how that decision is made. And then, you know, looking at this seems to now be the big event that the really top mountain bikers and gravel bike racers are appearing at or following as a series. And that that's pretty impressive. How how have you gotten to that point? You know, we have a really great team who uh, saw a need to elevate cycling as, you know, you have all of these traditional sports, you know, the stick and ball sports that people watch and are committed to, but why isn't cycling that sport as well, you know, and how can we elevate cycling and cycling events to that level? And so they have worked really, really hard to bring cycling awareness up um in you know raise awareness in people's minds so 
that's uh, what they've worked really hard to do with the Grand Prix. Ginger, let's take it back, you know, to the to the rider, to that, uh, you know, kind of, let's call again, off the couch rider. But when planning for the event, it's down in, in Beaver, which makes it so awesome. The community really is a, such a huge part of that event. But planning wise, you know, it can get a little challenging down there. And maybe explain to those that haven't done it a little bit of like timing wise, what options are available for housing, for camping? I know we've camped. So maybe give a little of that. Like when does it all sell out? And then again, how many total racers are there? Uh, start with the easiest question. We have to cap at 850 riders. And that is uh, due to our permit with the National Forest Service. And they unable to close the roads for the event. So, um, you know, we have vehicular traffic. And the pushers are very popular with, you know, fishermen and hunters and side-by-side uh, -side enthusiasts. So we have to share with all of them. And so we're capped at 850 riders. Lodging goes very quickly. Uh, Beaver is such a small community that once you know that you want to sign up, you really should make your reservations um, ahead of time just to ensure that you, if you want a hotel room, you've got to book early. I don't know the exact number of hotel spaces available. I know a lot of people have had to stay in Parowan and Cedar City, and some people even drive in and just sleep in their car the night before the event. There are a number of camping op options in the Tushers and in Beaver. Um, there's the KOA campground. There is the new NICA venue that is located just outside of Beaver, which is huge open dispersed camping area that people are, you know, welcome to go um, camp out. And, you know, fun fact that that NICA course is such a smooth, easy pedaling course that I really encourage people to take their gravel bags out on and just go rip that course because it's fun. It's a fun little course. That's really great to know about that new spot out there. Um, I'm sure our listeners will be interested to hear that. I mean, everyone does a little leg shake out. So what a great spot to to uh, do that out there on that course. For those that haven't done it again, how many aid stations are there? How does that work? You know, having done it, I, I have a picture of it, but maybe explain to people, you know, how, how self-supported is it? What can I get out on the course and a few things like that? What can I expect? We do have five aid stations um, and they will have, you know, water drink mix provided by EFS, um, you know, bananas, snacks, things like that. Um, you are expected to be fully self-supported though, in terms of mechanics. Uh, we don't allow on-course support from family, friends, teammates, things like that. So be prepared, bring extra tubes, bring tools, whatever you think you're going to need, because chances are you will have a mechanical of some sort while on the course. And so don't rely on aid stations or SAG to help you with a mechanical. So that that's my biggest piece of advice is to be prepared because the gravel on this course can chew you up and spit you out pretty quickly. And you will probably, you know, agree with me on that one, Jay. 
So, <laughs> but yes, we do have full five, five fully stocked aid stations. And there's a couple of like pop-ups, you know, uh, with our sponsors. They Garmin has been great to provide a, a Coke filled aid station out on the Sarlacc pit. DNA Cycling has historically, you know, set up on the Cold Crush with, you know, ice packs and things like that. And so just be prepared the for- The cold pantyhose are the, seriously, I, I think I wanted to get off and hug the person the last time they showed I'm like, what are you doing? And they're sticking this pantyhose filled with ice down my back. I was just like, oh my gosh, that is the best ever. Yes, absolutely. That is one thing that really impressed me when I did the race was the sort of the friendly nature of all of the aid stations. And, you know, here in Park City, I think we must have coined that term event fatigue. But down in Beaver, people seem, you know, it's it's not like the biking mecca of the world or anything. And it seems that people, locals really embrace it. And that was something just that felt so friendly and welcoming, so kudos to the race for for making that happen how do you get people to come back year after year i credit that to burke burke uh, is really phenomenal with forming meaningful relationships with people and you know his his father lived in beaver before he passed away and so he had a lot of contacts through his dad and the the people in beaver love this event it's something different that, you know, um, Beaver didn't have before Burke started this event. And so I've worked really hard to maintain those relationships. And I just go in and I thank each, you know, aid station captain personally, you know, take him some caps. And there's one gentleman, he is the aid station uh, captain for uh, aid station two and five. You'll see that aid station twice on the route. And his name is Brent and just the nicest man on earth. And I went in to go pick some stuff up from him and drop some stuff off. And he was like, okay, I've got some ideas for next year. I'm so excited. We had the greatest time. So I don't have to recruit people to man the aid stations. They want to do it. You know, his in-laws run an, an aid station and you know after last year's event they were like well i don't know if we want to come back and then i get a text from burke's wife and she's like my family's in again they can't wait so it really is it, it is a joy for them to serve the the people that are participating in the event they really do it's a passion project for them just as much they enjoy being out there and cheering on people who are putting forth so much effort. Right. Well, talking about the race course itself, as as we said, starts in Beaver. It goes up and over the Tusher Mountains, you know, between nine and 10,000 feet, drops down the backside or the east side down to a little town on Highway 89 called Junction. And then you ride some pavement down to Circleville. Is that right? And then you have to start that climb all the way back up and you end up at the top at the Eagle Point um, Ski Resort, which is, you know, just a beautiful, beautiful area. It, it's all pretty, um, I guess for Utahns who haven't been to that area, what do you think is the thing that 
that they can expect most about, I mean, other than elevation and difficulty? Uh, the views are unmatched. When you get to the top of the uh, Col de Crush, when you're about to descend, you look out and you, it just kind of takes your breath away. The, the views up there are second to none. And I think people who haven't visited Beaver in the Tusher Mountains are really missing out on a, a really special place. It's beautiful. It, it feels very rugged, very remote. Um, you, you have no cell service in, on so much of the course, which can be a little bit terrifying, but at the same time, liberating. So you feel, um, I feel free when I'm in the Tushers and I feel very connected to nature and um, the people around me. And I feel very fortunate. So I think that's uh, something that is lacking in, in a lot of our recreation opportunities because there's so many people and you feel so crowded. And I don't feel that way when I am on that course. So you, you know, you're going through very tall trees on a very narrow road. And then all of a sudden it just opens up into this, the most beautiful meadow, you know, mountaintop meadow, you know, which one I'm talking about and you ride and you, you know, there, there's a little downhill and you just can sit up and just look around and be in awe of what's surrounding you. So there's a lot of suffering on the climbing and there's a lot of joy in that pain, I think. That, that is for sure. I, I've sworn off this race. I actually <laughs> had to make myself a video to remind myself, but I mean, it is, it's such a great event. I mean, the, the volunteers, I mean, that's comes top of mind for me. And I think, you know, of all the folks I know here in town that do this year over year, but we want to, I mean, we want to inspire, inspire people, I think, to come do this event that haven't done it. And, and, um, it is just such a great experience out on the course. I think, tell us a little bit, it's attainable, I think is the thing that I, the way I like to think about it. What's the fastest time? What's the slowest time? Tell us how attainable it is. I mean, we I want people to experience this event, you know, and I think anyone can do it with a little preparation. And it is it is absolutely attainable by the everyday athlete. I, I firmly believe that. But it is not something that you can just be a casual cyclist and then go, I'm gonna go race to Crusher and and do it without training. Um, you do need to train. You need to be diligent in your training and, and work on your climbing and pacing. And the pacing would be the my biggest suggestion is pacing yourself on the climb so you don't blow up. Absolutely. Just plan on, uh, you know, get a good training plan. Find somebody to help you put that, that training plan together if you're not experienced in that and just take it chunk by chunk and little by little. And, and be prepared for the weather because it can be prepared for the weather. Yes. That yeah. is the one thing that really sticks out to me. Yep. I believe there was a year with snow or hail, a hailstorm. There's been thunderstorms, high heat, you know, you, it's all nice and cool up on the top of the mountain, but man, down there in the Sarlacc pit, you feel 
if the heat is just suffocating. So be prepared for all types of weather and take your electrolytes. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, Ginger, uh, we've got to let you go, but before we do, I wanted to say that the race sells out immediately, kind of, kind of like the point to point here in Park City. But as we know, people <laughs> tend to drop like flies prior to and want to sell their registrations. Uh, how, do, how would you find one? Unfortunately, Lifetime Events does not allow transfers of entries and it doesn't allow you can defer until the next year if you decide not to do it, but we don't allow the, the transfer of entries. I'm always looking for volunteers. So if you ever want to just come down and see what it's all about, reach out to me. I'm happy to put your name on a list and send you the signups when we get those. I'm working on those right now, our volunteer signups. And it really is, it gives you great insight and it amps you up to participate. My husband has run an aid station, uh, worked at an aid station the last two years, and he's like, I'm not doing it this year. I'm going to race it. So <laughs> really good to know. Okay. Well, yeah. Ginger Hall is the race director, director for the Crusher in the Tusher. Ginger, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much. Ginger Hall. And as I said in the intro, there is still a way that you can get a, a registration or an entry into this year's Crusher in the Tusher. You can uh, partner with the Lifetime Foundation, which is a foundation dedicated to inspiring healthy people, a healthy planet, and a healthy way of life. You can read more about the foundation. Go to ltfoundation.org, and it is a way, if you partner with that foundation, to get an entry into this year's Crusher in the Tusher. Thanks for tuning in to The Mountain Life here on KPCW Park City. And now just to mention, since I have a minute left here, about a community-wide random acts of kindness campaign taking place here in Park City for the next week and starting today. Oh, you know what it's like when you kind of bring some creativity around random acts of kindness. Maybe it is writing a thank you letter. Maybe it's buying coffee the per for the person behind you at uh, the coffee shop or any of the other many ways that you can spread good vibes and have fun. And as they say, you get a bigger dopamine hit when you actually perform a, a random act of kindness for someone else than they may even get by receiving it. So this is all taking place this week here in Park City and it's through an organization called Kept Current and you can go to kept current park city instagram page to find out more but the good thing is too you can share your story of your random act of kindness at hashtag random acts of kindness week or hashtag kindness and uh hashtag spread kindness and tell your story and then you might win a little prize a gift certificate to places like Oh, Pendry and Gallery Mar and Fox School of Wine and on and on and on um, different restaurants and just different fun things if you share your story. And we all love to hear those stories of random acts of kindness. At least I do. Thanks for tuning in to The Mountain Life here on KPCW Park City.